This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. In Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Grace, 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 community, community, community and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. What is God doing? Is God doing anything? Why does he sometimes seem like he is being silent? Can we question his ways? How does he feel about me when I am not feeling so sure about him? Do I have permission to even come to him in this kind of wondering? Some of us, I think, struggle with being honest in our questioning of God and his ways. Especially if, you know, like me, you come from a church space that really heavily emphasized apologetics and this need to be able to tighten up and defend all the points of your theology. You know, in 1 Peter, 1 Peter encourages the church to be ready at any time to give a defense for anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. I often heard this verse, this plea from Peter, used to explain why we need to be able to intellectually defend God. Almost this idea that if you can't debate about God, if you don't have all those answers about him, it might be on you if people don't get saved. And then add to that, there's this implication that God himself is then disappointed in you. God would see my poorly framed arguments, the answers I don't have as to why some people are now in hell instead of heaven. That's a lot of undue pressure. A word from Peter that is supposed to encourage a persecuted people to be ready to voice about why I'm sticking with Jesus when violent death awaits me has sort of been hijacked to be about why we need to have all the answers about God. Peter's charged to a people that are brutally, publicly executed for hanging on to Jesus has been diminished so much into being about westernized debates of logic. We don't have to know it all. For not only does our God tolerate our questions, he is a God of questions. Questions are a point where God himself is interacting with his children. Think of all the times that our God, while he is all-knowing, asks his children questions that he himself already knows the answers to. To Adam and Eve in the garden, where are you? Who told you? What have you done? To Cain, where is your brother? To Moses at the burning bush, what is in your hand? To Joshua, what are you doing down on your face? To Elijah as he's hiding out in fear, what are you doing here? To his people through the prophet Isaiah, why are you complaining? To Ezekiel, can you make these bones live? To Jonah, do you have any right to be angry? Again and again in the text, we see God asking his children questions. Jesus himself was a master question asker. One count says that Jesus asked a total of 307 questions throughout the Gospels. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Who by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Do you still not understand? Why are you afraid? Who do you say that I am? Our God himself 
a questioner because questions are a point where the divine meets the human, where the creator meets his created. So why do we so often function like God is annoyed or disappointed or disapproves of our questions? Why do we so often feel this pressure to know all the answers and have everything so tightened up? Having questions for God and going to him with those questions is just a part of the rhythm of our relationship with him. And we have a wonderful example of this with the prophet Habakkuk. Usually prophets are speaking for God to the people, but with Habakkuk, we have him questioning God, largely on behalf of himself, but also in a way on behalf of the people, in the depths of wrestling. So Habakkuk was a contemporary of Zephaniah, Jeremiah, and he was probably writing after the death of King Josiah in about 609. At this point, the southern kingdom of Judah is in its final decades. The threat of Babylon is on the horizon, and society is filled with idolatry and injustice and corruption. Basically what we have been seeing throughout the prophets. And Habakkuk is living in this mess, wondering, God, why aren't you doing anything about this? His questioning is from a personal struggle of how is it, God, that you can be good when there is such tragedy in the world? He's looking at the pain and injustice around him and saying to God, why aren't you doing anything about this? Habakkuk could be writing here and now. Habakkuk could be writing across multiple points of history. His personal wrestling is so close to ours and so close to many others throughout history. And we get this peek into his interaction with God in this. And I think in this, we are given some really valuable wisdom and some really valuable permission as God's children. So if you would turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 1, we see in verse 2 that Habakkuk is the one who speaks first. Habakkuk says, How long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen? Or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. So in the start of this conversation, we can tell right away that Habakkuk has a working relationship with God and a knowledge of God because he knows that according to God's setup, According to what God has laid out in the law, wicked are supposed to suffer and the righteous are supposed to flourish. But it is evidence that this is a problem. It is evidence also of Habakkuk's relationship and knowledge of God that he is questioning. He knows God, so he knows how it should be. But Habakkuk is seeing this reversed. God's way is reversed. And so he's brutally honest with God about it, and apparently not for the first time. 
How long do I have to voice my concern to you about this? How long are you going to be silent? Do you even hear me? Need I remind you, God, what we are dealing with here? He uses six words here to describe the social climate that he's living in. Injustice, wrongdoing, oppression, violence, strife, and conflict. So let me paint a picture for you, God, of what it's like here because you kind of seem to be checked out. And because of this, your law is ineffective. The Hebrew word for ineffective here is paralyzed or numb. It's the same word that was used to describe Jacob when he discovered that his son Joseph was still alive. This word of being stunned, immobile. So God, just to remind you, all of this injustice running rampant is basically making it look like your law is paralyzed. I think we need to feel Habakkuk's emotion in this. We often detach people in this text of their feelings, but the beauty of these poetic texts is the emotion that is happening between the lines. Feel it with him. Why aren't you stopping the suffering? Why aren't people in power being held accountable for their destructive actions? Why do people continue to inflict injustice with no seeming consequences? Why are you not stepping in to deal with the pain that we are struggling with here? These are not detached robotic questions for Habakkuk or for us. Frustration and confusion and anger and hurt and abandonment, doubt, feeling like you can't take it anymore. God's children can go to God with the fullness of our questioning about his ways with our emotion. We aren't going to bruise a tender ego. Our God is not fragile. He isn't going to pull away from us in disappointment. Rather, here is where he is present. Because communion with God is a conversing with him as we are swinging between our doubt and faith with our questions. This isn't Habakkuk's first rodeo. He's been here before. How long, God, do I have to keep coming to you with this? And we don't even know how long he had been coming to God with his questioning. But Habakkuk's faithfulness as God's child was in his persistence in coming to God with his doubts, to God with the fullness of his questions and all of the emotion it was carrying for him. And this time in the discourse, God answers Habakkuk. Chapter 1, verse 5, God says, Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded, for I am doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Look, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. They are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. So at the start of God's answer here, we are first reminded that there is a difference in perspective. Perspective is often a big reason why God may seem silent or inactive to us. Our perspective as the created in terms of what he may be doing is limited. We only see so much. We only see so much. We actually are only meant to see so much. But God as creator sees all, never rests, never halts, never takes a break, nor needs one. 
So God answers Habakkuk, basically your perspective is limited, so let me tell you what I am up to. And God doesn't owe Habakkuk an explanation here. God doesn't owe us an explanation. He doesn't need to be called into account, and yet he answers and explains at times as such an act of mercy and compassion and love to his children. So God's perspective here is, I'm actually doing something amazing, even though I may seem silent and removed. Be astounded. You're not even going to be able to believe it when you hear about it. So this is a reminding Habakkuk, take into account what I see and what you cannot. And so God says here, you know, while it may seem like I'm letting injustice and corruption run rampant, I already actually have a plan for consequences that is set into motion. Be amazed, Habakkuk, because I'm not doing nothing. I'm actually already bringing in the Chaldeans, which are the Babylonians. You think I'm checked out? I'm doing something to bring down the hammer. So Habakkuk here has received an answer from God which is a grace in and of itself. But like with many answers we may receive from God, it then raises more questions. Habakkuk's posture as he answers is basically, okay, but hold up. God's doing something that I couldn't see, got it, but now I'm kind of taking issue with what he is doing. First, he was questioning God's presence and activity, and now he's questioning God's character because God's answer seems to have a bit of a tension, a bit of a problem for him. Yahweh's use of the ungodly for his purposes seems like that should be incompatible with his holy nature. So Habakkuk, in his surprise at this, takes this approach of sort of reminding God what he is supposed to be like reminding God what he knows about him, and asking for further explanation. So chapter 1, verse 12, Habakkuk says, Are you not from eternity, Lord my God? My Holy One, you will not die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment. My rock, you destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So, why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? So, hey God, if you're supposed to be eternal, pure, not tolerating evil, How is it that you are using those who are treacherous to bring your judgment? Babylon is worse than us. They're more corrupt than Israel, and yet you are using them to execute your judgment against us? It is legit perplexing. God, how could you use those who are evil to carry out your plans and still be good? And then in verses 14 through 17, Habakkuk uses this fishing imagery that sort of portrays Babylon as casting this net to gather its catch, but the righteous are caught in the net right along with the wicked, and they all share the same fate. 
So another part of Habakkuk's problem is, so you're just going to take down the righteous right along with the unrighteous? God, that hardly seems fair. That hardly seems consistent with you if you are supposed to be holy. And then having made what he believes to be a sound and fair argument, the prophet announces his intention to just wait for God's reply. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. I love this part. Habakkuk has just laid out what he thinks is a very valid complaint. What I actually think is a pretty valid complaint. This is his checkmate. This is his, okay, God, your turn. I almost picture him waiting, arms crossed, foot tapping. One of the things I love about Habakkuk, he doesn't hide or brood in his confusion and wondering. He openly brings it to God in the fullness of emotion and intellect. And God doesn't shove him away, doesn't light him up. Rather, it is in this space between the questions and the answers, between the creator and the created, where engagement, relationship happens. Because we were wired to commune with God in relationship. We were meant to walk with him in the garden, conversing, sharing thoughts, picking his brain. And God doesn't begrudge our struggles with understanding his ways. Rather, he invites the fullness of his children to him in their struggle. For true faith isn't marked by never wrestling. It is marked by going to God in the fullness of our wrestling. And he can take it because he is God when we are confident in him, and he is God when we are not. It is a firm, steadfast place for all of our questions and our wrestling to land. So here, Habakkuk comes to him with some uh, boldness. And God, again, instead of being indignant with Habakkuk's demand, responds, engages, comes back with an answer. He doesn't have to give, but he wants to. Chapter 2. Verse 2, God answers. <clears throat> Write down this vision. Clearly inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Moreover, wine betrays. An arrogant man is never at rest. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and like death, he is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself. He collects all the peoples for himself. So what is God saying here? God is saying, I am going to show you what is going to come to pass for Babylon, just not yet. I will handle them too. These verses are God's way of assuring that 
just because I'm using a corrupt nation for my purposes, it doesn't mean I'm co-signing on their sin. My using them for my purposes of justice doesn't mean I'm giving them a free pass when it comes to their destructive behavior. Because of your perspective, you don't see how I'm handling it. So this part of things requires faith on your part. You who are righteous must live by faith in me in this spot. Part of living by faith is trusting that God is going to handle it even when you can't see it at all. Sometimes part of what it is to live by faith means we're not going to be able to iron it all out perfectly in our time and with our perspective. Part of what it means that we live by faith is that we have to lean into God and trust what he is doing as his perspective and his being and his ways are so much broader and greater than ours ever could be. We live as those who sometimes all we can do in this spot is surrender in faith, surrender not to logic, surrender not to intellect, not to physical proof, not to our own wills, but to a loving God who actively and permanently holds all of these things in his hands, including our own lives. Sometimes we need to just let go and surrender here. And then God spends the rest of chapter two explaining What's specifically about Babylon that he is actually really opposed to? So Habakkuk, just to make sure that you know how serious I am, you think Babylon is bad? I know way more than you do. And here are the specific offenses that I see that I'm going to deal with. You think I'm not taking them seriously? Actually, I am taking them way more seriously than you even have the capacity to. This is such a good reminder as we struggle issues around us of corruption and sickness and injustice and heartache, the thriving of the wicked, the poverty of the righteous, validly struggling. But do not ever forget for the ways that these things weigh on you. Not only does our God see it, but he sees and holds more of it than you ever could, and he takes it way more seriously than you have the capacity to in the here and now. Nothing escapes his sight. And him using the corrupt for his bigger purposes at times is not God co-signing on their sin. In fact, he takes it the most seriously. They will pay. Just will happen his time, not ours. So we wait in faith in that spot, remembering that his silence or his seeing silence and inactivity never means that he is absent. So Habakkuk responds to all of God's assurances here of his activity and his justice, then with a song in chapter three that is filled with this beautiful Exodus imagery. He's recounting places and themes and events and times when God was faithful in the past for his people. True praise in the midst of current darkness doesn't come from a change in our circumstances, but in remembering who our God is in the midst of those circumstances. Nothing has changed for Habakkuk here except his perspective. 
His perspective shift on what God sees and God knows helps him view God's faithfulness in the past as a means to trust God's faithfulness for the future. This act of remembering is a lifeline in getting our bearings so that we can cling to God when life is tough. We are to be a people marked by rhythms of remembering. Remembering is almost this spiritual discipline to help us endure the difficulties that being in this world brings. For remembering God's faithfulness in the past is what enables us not just to praise God in the hardship, but to have a hope in God no matter what comes. Because Habakkuk here, chapter 3, the end of this song, has circled around into this beautiful space. Chapter 3, verse 16, Habakkuk says, I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Now I must wait quietly for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, yet, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice, the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. So Habakkuk started this out with, what in the world, God, are you even paying attention right now? Comes to this declared hope in God, no matter what. Habakkuk's interacting with God about the deepest darkest parts of his struggles with God's ways. Interacting with God about that is what takes him from a place of confusion to confidence. Because again, nothing around him has changed. There's still injustice, corruption, pain. There's this looming threat of Babylon. But his engagement with God and God's engagement with him in the midst of it changes Habakkuk. Our honest interacting with the presence of God in the darkness of life and God's faithfulness to us in it is what can help take us from those spaces of wanting to give up to having a fresh resolve. The change that has happened here is just between the connection, the divine and the human, between God and his struggling child. And the honesty is what really brings those things together. At the end of this, are Habakkuk's questions answered? Sort of. Some of them are, some of them not so much. But in the process of his struggling, Habakkuk has drawn near. The seeking to understand God's ways honestly is what brings us into the depths of God. And going more into the depths of God is what grounds us in a world that is constantly trying to toss us about. 
Habakkuk anchors himself in God while he questions God. And that is what we are able to do. We likely won't circle around as quickly as this at times, probably most times. Remember, this wasn't Habakkuk's first attempt. We get this neat and clean three-chapter snapshot of what should be a lifelong of journeying. Sometimes the dark night of the soul lasts days and weeks and months and even years. But part of what it is in that, as God's, is we engage with him in that darkness as a part of our life story. This book, Habakkuk, this conversation we see, this isn't a one-off. Habakkuk models our constant relationship with God. And the way to God in this and in our current landscape, in a pandemic, with political turmoil, with violence, injustice, with fears we are caring about our futures, the way to God in that is through brutal honesty with the reality of the cries of our hearts brought before him. For at the end of the day, Answers aren't our comfort. God is. And we can go to him honestly in that as an act of faith. For this is how the righteous live by faith. Fully, honestly, the motion, unabashedly, swinging between doubt and trust, between faith and fear, between lament and praise. And God is there for us in our seeking. We seek him in the joy. We seek him in our worry. We seek him in our celebration. We seek him in our mourning. We seek him in our questions. We seek him in our confidence. In all things, with the kind of God we have, we can lean in. That it was, that this is what it is for us to walk by faith in this. For where else do we have to go? And not only is this questioning permissible for those of us who belong to him, this is where we meet God, this is where we are transformed. Meeting with God in the fullness of where we are is where his work upon us in our hearts ends up giving us the legs we need to stand upon in the midst of the trials of our lives. So that even while we may be asking God today, in the places where pain and loss and grief and struggle have seemed to sort of take up residence in our hearts and we have questions for God about where he is in those things. May by our communing with God in our questioning and wrestling, we be able to say, by faith with Habakkuk, though the fig tree does not bud, Though there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, even though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, even though COVID stretches longer than we could have anticipated, even though our bodies keep breaking down and fighting against us, even though our future lives are marked by so much uncertainty and struggle, even when our hope in our political leadership proves futile, even though progress we hope to see the world making proves to again and again be in vain, even if all that gives us safety and comfort is stripped from our lives, yet, yet, may we celebrate in the Lord. May we rejoice 
and the God of our salvation. And in all things, may the Lord, our Lord, be our strength. You please pray with me. Father, I thank you for the fact that you are a God who at the end of the day is unchanging, is steadfast, and is faithful not only to his own character and holiness, but to his children, those that he has called his own. And so in that, Father, I pray that in all the ways that we need, you would embolden us to be more honest and transparent, even in our conversing with you. Father, that that may be a space where we draw more into the depths of who you are. And that that would be a place, Father, where you strengthen the faith that we need to rest in you well in the midst of the struggles and trials we are going through. And I ask this, Father, not so that we, at the end of the day, may look greater or be elevated, but so that you would look more precious, that you would look more valuable, and that you would be the one who is honored and glorified. We ask for your help in this because we cannot do this on our own. We love you, and in your name we pray. Amen. Communion is really a perfect reminder of what is certain in the midst of uncertain circumstances. What is sure when so many things seem unsure, no matter what the world carries for us right now. So in the heaviness of life, in what is challenging us right now, in our struggle and our suffering and our wrestling spiritually, communion is this rhythm that we have that helps give us a rootedness. It is what we remember and we come back to regularly in the midst of things. We do communion regularly as a spiritual discipline of having a rhythm of remembering so that even in our doubts and uncertainty, this is a truth we hold on to that transcends time, events, and helps ground us in our God. So for those of us who belong to Christ, if you have the elements before you, if you claim him, this space is for you. So as we together stop to get our bearings this week here, let's remember in the midst of the fullness of what we are holding and carrying, the one who holds all things and carried the heaviest burden of all on our behalf. For on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this whenever you eat of it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took up the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, poured out for the remission, for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. With faith, please join me. Eat and drink. Please join me for the benediction. 
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine, according to the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us, to him be glory within the church and in Christ Jesus, now and forever. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.